Guys, just a quick uh, reminder for us this morning before we dive into the text. Here at Crosspoint Community Church, one of our core values is family discipleship. Um, and one of the ways we, we play that out is this idea that um, children should be being discipled primarily by their parents, is that we have some younger kids in the service than maybe what some other churches um, do or are used to. And so if you've got some little ones in here, and we have even younger ones on the last Sunday of the month, I just want to encourage you with that. I want to encourage you, um, even though it may be kind of, you may be nervous about that, to see it as an opportunity. Um, it's an opportunity to teach, model, and lead your little ones in what it looks like to worship with God's people to engage a worship service. Um, in some ways, teaching that is, is kind of like teaching them how to eat, right? When you guys sit down for a meal at dinner time, you're eating, and if you have like a, give like a two-year-old or something like that, still learning to do solids, they're learning to eat, they're kind of making a mess, it's harder, but while you're eating, you're teaching them how to eat too, right? So that's what that is. It's an opportunity for you to lead and guide them into that. And the reality is, guys, that all of us, kids or no kids, right, we all struggle with coming in here with the mentality of, what's this experience going to be like for me? What am I going to get at us? And just really thinking about ourselves and our experience and how it's going to be for us. Um, and having the little ones in here challenges us that with, right? Challenges us with that idea, like Paul said in chapter 2, which was, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And part of that is kids, right? Because the kids are part of us too. Um, so while they're here, just know that it's okay if there's some squirming, it's okay if there's some wiggles, it's okay if it's a little noisy, that's all okay they're learning, and you're teaching them probably more than you realize as you do that. And so um, I'm going to do some things to help engage them too along the way, help them kind of stay, stay with us. So one of those things I do when I'm teaching on the last Sunday of the month is I'll ask this question to make sure they're still with us. I'll say, kids, are you listening? And they're all going to answer, yes, Pastor Kai. So let's try it real quick. Some of you guys know the drill. Kids, are you listening? Let's try that again, but like five times as loud, okay? Kids, are you listening? Much better. Wasn't quite five times loud. It was pretty close. Good job. All right, so today we're going to walk through this text a little differently. Um, instead of having like a kind of a bullet point outline, we're just going to make observations about the structure of what Paul is saying here. Um, we're going to look at just from a, um, not linguistic level, but like a, you know, language level of like, what is it that Paul is saying? What are the types of sentences he's using and saying as he works through kind of this, this argument or this encouragement? So we're going to walk through it once, like a real brief overhead from like 12,000 foot above. Um, and then we're going to comb back through these five observations about what Paul is saying and dig into each one more specifically. So first, let's just go through it kind of at a glance. And so the first thing you're going to see in this text is a command. Paul's giving this command to imitate me and others. You see that in verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And what you really have there is a compound sentence with two verbs, right? One of the verbs being join in imitating me. So we're just going to shorten that to imitate. Um, the other one, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul is saying, imitate us, and he's saying, keep your eyes on those like us who are following in the ways of the Lord. Don't, don't divert your eyes to these other things, but keep your focus steady on those that you should be imitating. And then he follows that up with a warning of what will happen if your eyes drift and you start to look at others who you might want to imitate instead. 
And here's what he says about that, is that if you instead imitate those who are enemies of the cross, your end will be destruction. So we see that in 18 and 19. He says, For many of whom I've often told you now and tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So Paul's saying there's two types of people you can imitate. Those with godly characteristics who are chasing Jesus and those who are running away from him. And keep your eyes and imitate those over here. Don't be distracted by those over on this side. And then he moves into a teaching. So that's the command. Do this. Here's the warning what happens if you don't. And then he gives them this teaching to just flip the paradigm of how their minds work. Um, and he basically tells them, like, you guys, your natural tendency is to think you are citizens here on this earth, but you're not. He says, your citizenship is not here. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's challenging them to completely shift their thinking from what is natural and normal for people who live on this earth. And then he gives them a promise of what will happen if they imitate and if they follow through with this thing, that Jesus will bring us to our true home. In verse 21, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then he closes it with just another command, and, and it's basically reiterating the command to imitate and to watch, but just in a different way. He just says, stand firm. So don't be distracted. Don't drift to those who are enemies of the cross, but stand firm in watching and imitating those who are on the path of godliness. So that's kind of the the overview of how he's structuring um, this passage, this section of Philippians. Now let's, let's go back through each one and make some observations and applications that are relevant for us today. So first of all, he says this command to imitate me and others. Paul actually says this a lot. Four different times in the New Testament, Paul gives us some, some version of follow me as I follow Christ or be imitators of me as me as I and others imitate the Lord. Um, so kids, are you guys listening? Very good. Henry, I want to hear it, man. I'm calling you out if you're quiet. All right. Do you all know what imitate means? Raise your hand if you know what it means to imitate someone. Anyone know what that means? No? Okay, this is a little disappointing, I'm going to be honest. All right, so a few of you guys, very few of you know what imitate means. All right, the word imitate means to copy someone, right? So if you imitate someone, you're watching what they're doing and copying it, right? So if one of your siblings at the table, like, takes his food and throws it against the wall, and you think, hey, that's funny, I'll do that too. That's imitating, right? Um, that's copying someone else. You guys may have had people copy something you're doing, and you're upset, you're like, hey, quit copying me, right? That's what it means to imitate. And so here's what Paul is saying, is that we're to imitate, we're to watch others who are following Jesus and walking in a way we know is right and good. Watch them and do what they do. We're to imitate them. And as I was thinking about the what all that means for us, one of the first things that stood out to me was this idea that Paul, as a church leader, and then looping others into it, is telling this church that you ought to be not just listening to your leaders, but doing what they do, acting like they act, living like they live. And so one of the 
best applications I think we can take away from this is that if you should ever find yourself in a situation where you're looking for a new church, for whatever reason you've left Crosspoint, maybe you've moved to a different area, you're looking for a new church, or maybe that's you today. Maybe you're here checking this out, you're visiting, you're kind of testing the waters. One of the things you absolutely have to look for and should figure out before you join is, do I want to imitate the faith of the pastors and the leaders of that church? Would I do well to walk after them and do as they do? Now, guys, that's not to say that any pastors or Paul, for that matter, is perfect, never messes up, never sins. But there is this idea of, do I want to, if I'm a parent especially, look at my kids and look at the leaders of the church and go, if you watch them and do what they do, it will lead you to Jesus. That is one of the best questions you could ask if you're looking for a church. Here at Crosspoint, we're blessed to have deacons, small group leaders, a team of pastors, and others of you in this church who may not have one of those titles or responsibilities, but I can, know, I can look at my kids and point to many of you in this room and say, just do what they do. Imitate them. Spend time with them. That's the thing about imitating someone is that you have to spend time with them, right? It's hard to imitate someone that you see once a week or once a month. It's one of the reasons we have small groups here and we value community is that one of the ways we learn how to follow Jesus is by being influenced by others who are following him, being around them, spending time with them so that we can be around them enough to imitate their faith. Basically, Paul is saying to imitate someone, they have to be your people. So one of the challenges there is that they're, you know, the, the core group of friends you have, the people who you do life the most closely with, need to be people who are following Jesus. It's not to say you can't have good, close relationships with people who aren't, but in order for you to imitate the faith of those who are walking towards Jesus and in the path of godliness, you've got to spend a lot of time around them. And Paul is just basically saying this, imitate me and, and keep your eyes on those like me who walk according to that example. And then comes the warning. That if you get distracted and if you instead begin to imitate those who are enemies of the cross, your end will be destruction. Chapter 3, verse 18, he says this, For many whom I have often told you and now tell you with, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. So let's consider who these enemies of the cross are. A couple things it says about them. One, their minds are set on earthly things. Two, their God is their belly, their desires, that, that's that word for like carnal cravings. And three, their glory is their shame. So often when Paul warns people of, you know, enemies of the church, he's talking about Jewish religious leaders who want to add Jewish rites onto Gentile believers and, and create rules for them that are um, contrary to the gospel. That's not what it is in this context. What Paul is talking about here is people who just live a life of self-indulgence. You know people like this. Maybe you've been a person like this. You, you, you think about people who see the world as just a big playground, right? It's just a big thing that's at their disposal, and they are just going to soak it up, drink it up, live it up, take in as much pleasure as this world has to offer without any regard to others and their needs, right? That's, that's the idea of worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom says you do whatever makes you feel good. You do whatever makes you happy. You're unhappy in your marriage? Well, divorce the person. Move on. Find something else or someone else 
that makes you happy. You do what makes you feel good. When I think of that, I, I can't can't help but think of, you know, just someone that's just indulging all the desires of the flesh and has the world at their fingertips. And is, I just think Hollywood, you know, not to say every person in Hollywood fits that description by any means, but there is kind of that perception we have, right? If we consider maybe a family like the Kardashians or something like that, that, man, they just seem like they have access to any pleasure or desire imaginable, Right? And, and it's this idea that some people pursue those things, and not only that, but they're, they're, the things they do in selfish indulgence, they're not only doing it, but they're proud of it. There's this aspect of like, yeah, I went and did that. Yes, I did this with this many people, or I did that here or that there, and I'm proud of it. Paul says their glory is their shame. And the warning is that the end of that is destruction. And I think, I think there's a Two-part meaning there. I think part of that meaning is, yeah, eventually someone who doesn't know Jesus and pursuing their pleasure in the world and not him is going to end up in hell, separated from Christ. And this, these glories and these, these things they thought were so joyful are just going to be a blip on the radar when compared to eternity. And that's not where we want to end up. But I think there's also an element of here and now, because if you were to look at someone I describe like that, someone who's just, their life is just all about whatever makes me happy, whatever instantly gratifies me in the moment, their life is going to leave a wake of hurt and destruction. And Paul is saying, don't get distracted by that. That may look good on the surface. Think about it, guys. Think about how many, how many followers Hollywood celebrities have. You have teenagers and young adults all across America thinking, I want that life. I wish I had that. That must be great. That's got to be better than the life my pastor is telling me to live, right? I mean, look at it. And Paul is saying, don't bite on that bait because attached to that is a hook of destruction. It may look good on the surface, but that is not going to lead you to a place you want to be. But that godly wisdom is a life of self-sacrifice. One commentator said it this way, We don't have to grab all the gusto, drink all the beer, experience all the pleasures, or visit all the exotic vacation spots. Those diversions are ever so brief and never as satisfying as we hoped they would be. Sooner or later, our lowly bodies, already in a slow but steady process of decay, won't be able to enjoy them anyways. So Paul's saying there's two options that are always going to be before you in life. Two paths you're going to see people walking down. Those on this path of worldly pleasure that leads to destruction and those of godliness that leads to everlasting life in Jesus. And he's saying, watch these guys. Keep your eyes on them and imitate them. Do not let your eyes drift over to these other things and crave and want them because that path does not lead to a good place. And then Paul transitions and just gives this this teaching of In fact, you need to completely transform the way you see the world. And he says, your citizenship is not here, but in heaven. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is specifically, this language is specifically relevant for the church in Philippi. Read you a little bit of context about the city um, that this church was in. So the same commentator, Dennis Johnson, points out that in A.D. 42, Octavian, who would later become Caesar Augustus, defeated his rivals in a decisive battle just outside the city of Philippi. 
And then he settled many of his loyal troops and generals in Philippi and made it a colony of the city of Rome. So living in Philippi, your status as a Roman citizen would be equivalent to that as someone living in the capital city of Rome. People in Philippi didn't pay taxes. Sign me up, right? Um, that sounds really good. They didn't, they, there were a lot of privileges and stuff they enjoyed as Roman citizens. There were a lot of pride and a lot of benefit and a lot of advantage to that. And Paul looks at those people, the ones who have every right to claim and be proud of being a citizen of Philippi and saying, hey, that's not where your identity really lies. Before you're a Roman, before you're a citizen of Philippi, you're a subject of King Jesus. And your real home is not here in Philippi. It's in heaven, hidden in Christ. He's challenging them to completely shift their thinking. And I think that is so relevant for us. Here in America, Texas, Rockwall, we're in a pretty well-to-do area. We've got a lot of benefits of being citizens of those things. And so I'm going to look at three really relevant applications of this idea that our citizenship is not here but in heaven. And the first is this, we are Christians before we are anything else. Before you are anything else, you are a subject of King Jesus. That means before you're an American, before you're a Democrat, before you're a Republican, I know this is touchy, I hate to, I'm always nervous saying stuff like this, even before you're a Texan, okay? Even before you're a Texan, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Your citizenship is, it's your home, it's your language, your identity, your culture, your highest and greatest allegiance. And that's not to say you can't have allegiance to other things. Paul was a Roman citizen. He claimed that at certain times, right? He was a Jew by birth. He was glad to claim, I'm a Jewish citizen and some of the rights that come along with that. But at the end of the day, if loyalty to the Jewish expectations or the Roman rule meant disloyalty to Jesus, Jesus wins every time. Citizens of Jesus first. You are citizens of heaven, Christians, before we are anything else. One of the applications of that for our church is that you're not going to see a lot of patriotic things at this church. You're not going to see us singing hymns about America things like that. And it's not because we don't like America. I think you would find a lot of our leadership, we're, we love America. We love Texas even more, but we love America. Um, but, but we're doing something bigger than that here, right? When we gather together on Sunday mornings, something bigger, greater, and beyond the confines of our country and patriotic pride is happening here. Something greater and higher than that. To the point that if someone were to come in that for whatever reason doesn't like America or, or doesn't like Texas or maybe isn't, you know, even just isn't an American citizen, we don't want that to get in the way. Because that's not what we're about here. We are about the fact that we are citizens of heaven first. That also means that what happens politically is not our greatest concern as Christians. Especially during election years, that can seem like such a big deal, right? And it is. And that's, again, guys, balance this out, right? I mean, that's not to say we shouldn't be involved, we shouldn't vote. I'm not saying any of that. We should care. Some of us should probably care more than we do, right? But we don't live and die by it. Like at the end of the day, this isn't even our home. Our home is hidden in heaven with Christ. Second application point of that is that this citizenship, being citizens of heaven, that makes us family with brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Notice the family terms Paul uses at the beginning and end of this passage. He refers to them as brothers, my brethren. He calls them family. Kids, are you guys still listening? All right, I want you to think for a second about your family, right? You have a mom, dad, grandparents, whatever it is. And think about family as the people that are closest to you, that you know you can count on, you know you can rely on, you know they have your back no matter what happens, right? That's how God wants us to see his church, that we are family. We have each other's back no matter what. One of the benefits of doing cross-cultural ministry I get to do is seeing that on display. And so we do this thing called Launchbox in Fort Worth. It's like a mission trip to immigrants and refugees in Fort Worth. And one of the things we do is we get this band, which is all um, African refugees now living in the States, to come and lead worship. One, because they're awesome. Um, they're just great, gifted musicians. They lead really well. And two, because it's just this really cool thing. So you got all these Americans, right, in the, in the congregation, so to speak, the um, that are participants at Launchbox. Almost all of them grew up in the U.S., all the privileges of citizenship and all that here. Most of them had a, you know, a pretty decent life as far as physical needs are concerned. And then up on stage, you've got this group of people who could not be more different, right? Many of them literally swam across rivers fleeing religious persecution or political unrest ended up getting resale of the United States or having to learn a language. They don't look like us. They don't talk like us. They don't act like, I mean, we could, they're really smart. They know lots of different languages, right? Everything about them is way different than all of us. And yet, Scripture tells us, I have more in common with them as fellow believers than I do than my neighbor next door who doesn't know the Lord, who watches the PBR, drives a big truck, and has lots of guns. I have more in common with them than I do that guy because of our, and you can see it and you can feel it when they're leading worship that there's this picture of like, we don't have anything in common but Jesus and that is bigger than everything else. The citizenship makes us family. Thirdly, this world is not our home. Paul is saying, look here, look at these guys who are living this way and imitate them, this is not our home. And this is, I think, especially relevant for those of us living in Rockwall because it can so easily, we can so easily get distracted by things of the world. And what I'm, what I'm saying is this, if I'm, I'm trying to do what Paul says and consider the godly people around me and make it my aim to, to imitate their godly characteristics. But then over here I see other people, or maybe even the same people, right, and the way they're enjoying the things the world has to offer, where they're going on vacation, the activities their kids are doing, the next house they moved into, their boat, their car, their boots, whatever it is that I see that, and I begin to want to long for and imitate things of the world and not godly characteristics in them. It's not to say that those things are bad, but who or what are we imitating in others? And Paul is just basically saying, don't look over here at the, the things the world has to offer. That's not your home. That's not what it's about. Keep your eyes focused on those of godly character and mimic not their stuff or the things they're doing, but mimic their godly character. It's a paradigm shift, and it has a great promise that Jesus will bring us to our true home. Verse 21 says, He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
Because the teaching there is that greater teaching in the book of Philippians that Jesus became a citizen of earth to make us citizens of heaven. That Jesus had everything he could have wanted in heaven, set it aside, became a citizen of earth to die in our place, not so that we could stay here and have a better life here, but to make us citizens of heaven. And he is preparing a place for those of us who know him even now in our true home. All right, kids, it's time. All right, I'm going to ask all the kids who are... um, about fifth grade and under, if you guys would make your way up here. I've got our special carpet for you guys to sit on. I'm going to talk to you guys real quick. Y'all come on up. Back up back up a little bit, bud. I'm going to spread this out. Can you help me spread it out, Josiah? Can you grab that corner? Y'all come on up. Let's go. Don't be shy. All right. You guys like stories? No. Like it? No? Oh, well, sorry. <laughs> We're going to hear one. You guys like Mad Libs? Anybody like, do you know what Mad Libs are? The one thing I like is games. The one thing you like is games. All right. This is kind of a game. All right. I'm going to ask you all some questions, and I'm going to tell you a story. And the questions that you answer are going to actually go, yeah, parents, y'all can come sit with them if y'all want. That's fine. You can, uh, um, the answers you're going to give are going to go into the story. You guys have done these before, right? Okay, it'll be fun if you haven't. It's fine. All right, so the first thing I want to know is who has a food that they just do not like, like a food that's like, oh, I can't stand that. Anybody? Yes. What you got? What's a nasty food? No? Okay. Noah? Jalapenos. Well, all right. There you go. Well, we'll do, we'll do another one. I'll get you next time. All right. Um, now I need two people that have a food that they like a lot. Sometimes like your favorite food. Yeah, what you got? Ramen? All right. There we go. Uh, no, or Josiah, what you got? Chicken. Chicken. All right. That'll work. All right. Okay, now I want you to tell me a type of factory. Something like a, a blank factory. Anybody? Shout it out. What you got? Candy factory. I love it. Candy factory. All right. A number between 10 and 40. Go ahead. Between 10 and 40. No? Go ahead. 35. 35. All right. Going on the high end. Sounds good. All right. Um, one more thing. What's something your mom likes to shop for? Clothes. What kind of clothes? Shoes, shirts, dresses? Everything, huh? Just all kinds of stuff. All right, cool. We'll just do clothes then. All right. What does your dad think of that? No, I'm just kidding. All right. So, all right, I'm going to tell you all a story. Y'all ready? I'll listen for the words in the story. Once upon a time in a far country, there lived a 12-year-old boy named Carson. And the city that Carson lived in was called Lawless. Nobody knew the real name of this city, but everyone called it Lawless because of how bad it was. There was a lot of crime. People would steal stuff and beat each other up, and no one would do anything about it. Parents didn't take care of their kids at all, so kids would often have to dig through trash cans to find food. Sometimes they would even have to eat rotten jalapenos for breakfast. That's pretty bad, huh? Carson was one of those kids, 
In fact, when he was 12, his parents told him to leave the house and fend for himself. And he was on his own in the city of Lawless, which was pretty normal for that town. But for all the bad things about Lawless, there were some good things. It had some of the best food you can imagine. It was the only place you could get pickled ramen. (laughs) Or candied chicken. It's the only place that offered those two things. There was a big carnival in the middle of the city where every night they had games and prizes and shows, which were all the best that the country had to offer. Since Carson was young, he was only 12, he couldn't afford to go to the carnival or eat those things, but he always dreamed of this and what it would be like, so he decided to go get a job. And he went to a job at the, can't read my own writing here, what was the factory? Candy factory. Oh, he got a job at the candy factory, thanks. When he showed up, he was actually locked inside and told he was now a slave. It was a trick. When people would go get a job there, they would just lock them in and make them slaves. So the hours were long and the work was hard and he never got to go outside. And he did this for 35 years. That means he was 47 when he was still working at that candy factory that enslaved him. And he hated Lawless, the city. And he dreamed of maybe one day he would escape and get to go to a better city. And then one day, something great happened to Carson. What do you think it was? Yeah, he's going to escape. One day, an old man that he'd never seen before walked right up to him in the factory. He introduced himself as William. And he explained that he'd come to set him free from the factory. And not only that, but check this out, guys. William, even though Carson was 47 at the time, William offered to adopt him as his new son. And that one day, William said that he would come back for him and bring him out of Lawless into his true home. And William said that for now, Carson must continue to live in Lawless. He could go find another job, start his own business, try to be a good person, even though most of the folks around him were not. And in the meantime, they'd be able to send letters back and forth to keep in touch. All right, I'll listen for the words y'all said, okay? Remember the words? There's going to be one more of them. Carson started a business selling clothes. Sold all kinds of clothes, shoes, shirts, anything you can think of. He made and sold it. Your mom and your sister love clothes? Good stuff. All right. All right. So it says, he was making a lot of money. He even had enough money to do all the things he wished he could do as a kid. He got to try, he got to try pickled ramen and even candied chicken. Finally got to have those things. And even got to go to the carnival a few times. But what he looked forward to most every day was le- reading the letters that Williams sent him. And through these letters he found that William was actually the king over the entire country. So the guy that set him free from the factory was the king, and he was the king's son now. That makes him what? A prince. That's right. He always looked forward to that. And he found that William was preparing a special place just for him in the capital city. And he would always sign his letters with, until I come back for you, William. But listen to what happened. As Carson got older and made more money, he started going to the carnival more often. He spent a lot of time with the most powerful people in the city of Lawless, got invited to lots of big, important meetings. He became a really well-known person there. And the more that he attained and the more he got and the more important he was, he started to care less and less about William's letters. And he would take some of the letters and just throw them away and not read them. And he pretty much quit writing back to William altogether. But then one day he saw a letter in a different color envelope. And he opened it, and the letter said this, Carson, I'm coming back to Lawless for you, and I'm bringing an army with me. 
and the factory where you were once enslaved is going to be torn down, and most of the city is going to be destroyed. But when it's over, it will be time for you to come home and live with me in the place I've been preparing for you. And the first thing that Carson thought was, well, no, what about my business making all those clothes? I'm doing so well. And what about all the, all the candied chicken I'm getting to eat and all the stuff I'm getting to do? And there's still some things in Lawless I haven't seen or done yet. And if it's destroyed, I'm never going to get to do those things. But then he caught himself thinking that way, and it hit him. That he'd become so focused on all the things he could do in Lawless that he'd forgotten that Lawless wasn't his true home. Because his true home was with William in another city. And he remembered that what William was preparing for him was way better than anything Lawless had to offer. What do y'all think the lesson behind that is? That was cool? Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It was funny? All right. Y'all made it funny. All right. So what we learned from that is this, guys. In this world, there are lots of things that can give us pleasure and enjoyment. There's things we like to do, things we like to have. But the more we fall in love with those things, the more in danger we are of forgetting about Jesus and our true home. Because if you're believing in Jesus, this world is not your true home. And Jesus is preparing something far better than the greatest thing here you can imagine. Okay? All right. Thank you, guys. Y'all can go back to your seats now. I know you're six, man. That's awesome. Really? Good to see you, man. Preschool? All right. You do have a neighbor named Carson. You have to tell him this story, man. Good stuff. Again, guys, it's not it's not bad, evil, or wicked to enjoy the things this world has. In fact. God gets pleasure when we do that. First Timothy 4 says, Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. But being in love with the things of the world can be dangerous. The more closely our, our ultimate hopes and aspirations are tied up in those things, the less they will be in Christ. One of the verses that challenges me with this is 2 Timothy 4.8. And Paul's at the end of his life, and he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all of those who have loved his appearing. Anytime I read that verse, I think, do I love Jesus' appearing? Like, do I love the idea that Jesus is coming back? Or have I fallen so in love with the things of the world that that seems like maybe something I might not want or might not be too excited about? Paul is reminding us that our citizenship is not here. This is not our home. And Jesus is preparing something far, far better to which the most greatest things you would long for in this world do not hold a candle to it. And then he wraps it up with another command, just reworded, just... Focus here. Focus on those who are of godly character. Imitate them. And he says, stand firm in this. Don't waver. Don't be distracted and fall in love with the things of the world, but stand firm in watching and imitating those who are following Jesus. So as we wrap up, I'm just going to read the entire passage again now that we've looked at the structure, picked it apart, and just hear the overall thought Paul is throwing out there to us. Chapter 3, verse 17. Brothers, Join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many 
of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables us, that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text and just the work it's done in my heart and reminding me to not set my eyes and my hopes and my aspirations on the things of this world, but ultimately in you. Um, God, I pray you'd help us to make sense of this, as I know that for me, I look at that, I'm like, well, is it bad to want this? Should I not go after that? Should I never buy anything again? God, help us to see the work through this in a way that would honor and please you and just to discern in ourselves the difference in wanting and having things in this world and being in love with the world over and above you. I pray in Christ's name, amen.